Well, hi, and welcome to the Viewfinders Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Graham Dargy, and today I'm talking with Trevor Cole, an award-winning travel and documentary photographer from Northern Ireland, who's been all over the world in pursuit of his photography. And uh, segue coming up here, speaking of all over the world, uh, one of the really fun things uh, for me about doing the podcast is checking out the analytics and seeing where in the world people are listening to this show. It's really fascinating to me. So uh, the UK obviously is the most popular place you might expect and uh, followed by the US. But the show's also been listened to all over Europe, in Mexico, Taiwan, Bangladesh, Australia, and we're quite popular in India as well. So um, if you're out there in one of those far-flung places, I would love to connect with you. Um, you can find me on the new Viewfinders Podcast Instagram account. That's at Viewfinders Podcast. And um, yeah, connect there. Yeah, And if you do that, why don't you send me a DM or a comment just to let me know that you've been listening to the show. I'd love to hear that. I'd love to see what photography you've been up to and just generally connect. You can also check out view-finders.co.uk where you can find out all about my photography and you can get my free long exposure tutorial video there too. Let me take a minute to mention my upcoming live event, Viewfinders Live, an evening with Mark McCall, sponsored by MPB. Uh, I'm hosting this online event on Monday, the 15th of February, 2021 at 7.30 p.m. And it features one of Scotland's finest landscape photographers, Mark McCall. Uh, Mark is going to give an entertaining and informative talk about his amazing photography from Scotland to Iceland to Norway to Sweden and everywhere else that he's been. Uh, you can ask Mark anything in the live Q&A. You could even win a £50 voucher courtesy of the event sponsor MPB. Mark's a great guy, really knows his stuff and has a great way about him. So it's sure to be a great night in because nights in are the new nights out in lockdown for anyone with an interest in landscape photography. Tickets are available now on Eventbrite for the strange price of £11.37, that is £10 for the ticket, plus Eventbrite's booking fee. I'd also like to thank MPB for sponsoring the event. MPB, if you don't know, is a place where you can buy and sell used photography equipment. Camera gear is so expensive and buying used is a great way to get the kit you really want while saving some money. I've used MPB a few times over the years for lenses and also for my filter kit and I always recommend them to anyone who asked me about buying their next lens. So thanks to MPB for giving me a £50 voucher to give away at Viewfinders Live an evening with Mark McCall on Monday the 15th of February 2021 on Zoom. Hope I can see you there. Uh, okay, let's get to this show. This week, my guest is Trevor Cole, a travel and documentary photographer from Northern Ireland. Trevor's career as a geography teacher has taken him all over the world and his incredibly atmospheric photographs South Sudanese herdsman won him the Travel Photographer of the Year People and Culture Prize in 2019. I liked Trevor's photography before I spoke to him but hearing how he goes about his work and how much passion and care and respect he has for the people and places he shoots give me an even greater appreciation for what he does. Um, our conversation covers Trevor's childhood growing up among the Troubles in Northern Ireland how a road trip to North Africa changed his life, the keys to taking a great portrait, and much, much more. I'm sure you're going to take plenty away from this week's episode. I love this chat, and I'm excited to share my conversation with Trevor Cole. Hi, Trevor. Welcome to the show. Uh, how's things? Fine, thank you, Graham. Nice to meet you. It's nice to see you on uh, the screen. Likewise. Uh, so where are you based? 
I'm currently based in a little village called Dunfanachy in northwest Donegal, right on the wild Atlantic Way. No, it sounds good. Is it? Um, you get a bit of weather over there, I'm sure. Uh, we've got a bit of weather at the moment. There's snow in the mountains, but yes, the weather the weather makes it and sometimes breaks it. Um, when I discovered your photography, Trevor, I was really struck by this sort of depth and diversity and quality. Those are three great things to get together. And you seem to have travelled extensively and. Um, you look like you're very adept at engaging the people you meet on those travels. And, I, I, you know, the pictures I think that really grabbed me were the uh, the cattle camps in South Sudan. And I was really interested to hear about some of your experiences that you've had on the road. And um, so we'll get into those things later, but um, let's go back in time. You, I read that you were born in Derry, is that right? That's correct, yeah. And so did you grow up there? I grew up there, went to school there. My family were farmers, but my dad also worked for the DuPont company. Um, But um, after I finished school in Derry, I went to university locally in Coleraine on the north coast, Ulster University. And then at the tender age of 21, I went and did a postgraduate certificate in education after my degree in geography. Mm. and that's when I moved to England and from then until 12 years ago I was out of Ireland. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's just interesting to hear that you had a degree in geography so you were always the world was always on your agenda right? Absolutely I, I refer to myself as a geographer photographer because when I look at my photography and I take photographs effectively it's geography, you know, whether mm. it be people, culture, landscapes, streets, whatever it is, I can connect it to my passion for the subject which I, I grew to love and taught for a long number of years, 24 of which were overseas. Mm. So when you were studying that, were there places that just you you were maybe you were learning about that just caught your attention and made you want to go and travel the world well i i think because my father worked for the dupont company um he gave us a flavor of travel because he was posted for a little while in luxembourg so even at primary school uh we got to go to uh europe which was quite a long time ago. But my first real travel experience was when a group of 10 of us at the age of 18 decided to rent a minibus and drive from Derry to Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia (laughs) overland and come back up through Italy again. We went down through the western part of Europe and back up through central Europe. And that just blew me away. And Mm. from then, and still now, uh, the passion to travel um, exists. That sounds kind of... Okay, so let me go back to Luxembourg. In those... What kind of year was that? I don't... I mean, it just seems like traveling uh, to Europe, maybe... uh, I'm I'm not trying to, to... 
uh, <laughs> have a knock about your age, but in those <laughs> to, days, it seemed to put me uh, on the geological was, time scale. <laughs> it probably, <laughs> probably wasn't that common, right? I mean, was it quite? No, unusual it, in those it days? wasn't. This was the the uh, early seventies, um, so it was a long time ago, hmm. and it was incredibly unusual then. Um, then you know, even going to north africa that was that was 74 mm. and then i went again the next year to eastern turkey driving in a tiny mm. little datsun mm. and uh, it was at about that time uh, the second trip the first trip i realized i needed to photograph and didn't have a camera mm. the second trip i persuaded my parents to buy a, an slr so mm. i got this wonderful Rolly Flex SLR, quite an unusual camera actually. My daughter still has it, um, and that's when I think the seeds of the photographic passion were were planted. So, um, it, was that did the photography come to you quite easily, or, or I mean, how was that journey for you? Because the, obviously, the the two things, travel and photography, kind of go together. They do, absolutely. And I, I think the answer is probably yes. Um, I almost, almost did art um, for my further education rather than geography. I'm glad I didn't. But there's always been a little bit of the artist in me. Mm. And I've always had... I think an eye for for what I think is aesthetically pleasing. So to me, that is probably is probably an intuitive thing. Mm. But I, I I've always enjoyed capturing what I think looks good. Mm. So were you sort of creative as a kid? Yes, in the sense that uh, I I love to get a a sketch pad out and draw and I even uh, oil painted in my early teens and really the transition to photography was quite an easy one and I, I used to get frustrated when I was sketching or drawing because I never qu quite got to the point where I thought wow that's really what I want to achieve when I can pick up a camera and, and, and it's, it's almost spontaneous mm. and you can see what you've got Mm. Um, it it's it, it makes it a lot easier. So um, I was curious about um, you, you growing up in Derry. Was it, were there troubles at that time? Yes, um, it, precisely at the time I was I was at school. Uh, quite traumatic times. Although when you live in a context uh, uh, where where there are uh, conflicts and troubles, as they call them here. Uh, you accept it, it becomes a part of life mm. and you don't realize the impact of it all until you take off and go and live somewhere else and look back and then you see, you see the stupidity of it but you also come to understand it better um, because whenever you live here you're very vulnerable to the prejudices which exist and it's a bit like social media today um, you can be convinced that one viewpoint is right 
But as a teacher of geography, I used to always tell my students, look at the number of different viewpoints you can have mm. in something, and then we can debate them. So if, you, if you're growing up then with that sort of um, culturally ingrained um, prejudices, uh, and then you go travel like you did at a young age to far off and exotic places, how, what, does, how does that, what does that do to your, your mind and your thinking when you go and see all these other points of view? Well, for me, it was totally enlightening. It opened my mind to uh, the fact that bias and prejudice truly does uh, exist and in a way that I'd never thought um, I'd see. It, it's truly interesting to take yourself um, out of a context and look back at it and realize that, that there were so many things that were drilled in almost. It's a bit like, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not the most religious person on earth and I don't like anybody brainwashing me or trying to brainwash me. Um, I like to look at things objectively and to see for myself what I think is the reality behind a story. Hmm. So, okay, let's go back to your timeline here. So you said that you lived outside of Ireland for some time. Mm. Um, so talk to me about that period of your life. Where, where did you end up living? Well, I, I, I lived for a year um, in Sheffield doing my postgraduate certificate of education, then 10 years um, outside London in Hertfordshire. Was um, that for teaching? Teaching, then, yeah. I was I was teaching in a comprehensive school. It was a commuter belt school, so it was it was a really nice school. So it was a good place to start. And then the the the, the desire to travel, which has always been there. I used to backpack in 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 the summers and take my camera with me. So I ended up in in the eighties backpacking all the way through. Southeast Asia, going to Zimbabwe and Kenya, and then I just thought, well, why not live overseas and fully immerse yourself? So in 1988, I went to live in Singapore uh, as the head of uh, the geography department in a very prestigious, wonderful school, taught me how to teach very, very open-minded style. It taught the International Baccalaureate, uh, where it, it, I taught kids to think, not to pass exams. Mm. And if you teach kids to think, they pass the exams anyway. Mm. Uh, I stayed there 13 years, um, then moved to West Africa for a year to teach. That wasn't such a good school, so I only stayed a year. Uh, then I went to Italy for four years, Ethiopia for four years, and Brazil for two years. Hmm. And then came back to Ireland in 2012. Okay, that's quite a journey then. <laughs> oh yeah, um, so it's, it's, it's a long one. It's amazing that teaching can take you all around the world like that, because I can imagine a lot of teachers might just stay in the same school for the bulk of their career. Sometimes um, for life. Yeah, which is fair, fair enough, I guess, if that's what you want to do. But um, that's quite an adventure for a teacher. So, um, and photographing the cultures all all the while. 
all the while. I mean, I mean, because I ran geography field trips, of course, that enabled me to immerse myself in in the landscapes of Southeast Asia, the diverse cultures of the Himalayas. Mm-hmm. Of course, this was pre-digital, um, but I, I traveled to most Southeast Asian countries, uh, then also Central Asia, South Asia, even from uh, Singapore, we traveled around South, Southern Africa to Latin America, and always camera in hand. So I'm, I'm totally self-taught. And then you're back to Ireland. Why back to Ireland now? That's a really good question. Um, I, I guess I could have, I could have, I could still be teaching. Um, basically, I had two parents uh, with dementia, and my sister, my only sibling, was she's an intensive care nurse, but she was really taking the brunt of of, of looking after them. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, I was, I was divorced and I have two adopted daughters from Southeast Asia, one born in Cambodia, the other born in Singapore. And after that, they came back to the UK. So I didn't get to see them enough. So there was a push factor. And then I suddenly thought to myself, why not have a go at following your other passion photography Hmm. and uh, there were lots of family issues to sort out a bit of care for my parents and the photography together with family uh, became the 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 factors that the gravitational pull if you like back Hmm. to Ireland Hmm. and so is that when you started the photography tours business or yes we started uh, I have a friend who lives very close to me here he's he's a loves taking landscape shots and we decided you know <coughs> to do a little a few weekend <coughs> excuse me uh mm-hmm. photo courses for local people uh so we took them out around the coastline and and taught them about composition and uh, just all the tools that the camera offers getting them away from taking shots in program mode or automatic mode and Mm -hmm. using aperture, you know, doing manual shots, um, types of metering using ISO. And we we ran these little courses around what is now the Wild Atlantic Way. And we still do that. Uh, I'm doing an online course for local people at the moment um, every, every Monday night. But then you know the desire comes to take it a little bit further so we did a few in iceland um we do one now to the the west coast of your wonderful country Mm -hmm. um up to uh sky the hebrides uh over to ellipool down to torridon and back to fort william including glencoe of course Mm. um you know, wonderful. And then, you know, we also do a few for ourselves. We, you know, we, we took ourselves off to, to Canada um, and um, to Austria. And now, because of my, my teaching in Ethiopia, I started taking tiny groups to especially 
the tribal areas of uh, the Omo Valley in Ethiopia. And I've been doing that almost, mm, not every year, but almost every year since 2010. Well, I've been going back since I left Ethiopia every year. Mm. Uh, sometimes for myself, I, I think it's important to go and shoot for yourself sometimes mm. as well. It's it, the the tours that you run look incredible, really, and everybody, myself included, we all do, you know, Sky, Glencoe, um, you know, there's Iceland, uh, Faroes, and those are the, a lot of the places that people go, Lofoten. But um, I haven't seen some of the destinations that you go to. I haven't seen people doing tours there. And um, so I wanted to, uh, well, that kind of takes us up to now start talking about your photography, really. Um, so we'll, we'll get into some of the locations there. Um, but I saw this on your website. I think it was on your website um, where you said, um, I seek the moment and the light in whatever context I'm in. Is that something you said? I, that sounds exactly like something I said. <laughs> so, well, I just when I read that, I thought that just sounds like the heart of travel and documentary photography, seeking the moment and the light in whatever context. But what does that process of seeking the moment really look like for you? What are you going through when you're, when you're in that process? Well, I, I, I think, you know, when the light is right, even the ordinary can become extraordinary. That's mm -hmm. not, not an original quote, but it's so, so true. Whether you're shooting landscapes and that beam of light comes down from the Irish heavens and, you know, creates an intense shade of green in a distant hill, or whether you're, you're shooting a, a, a soft sunset um, on one of the west-facing beaches here, or whether you're, you're capturing a face, a portrait, or a village context, it's, it, it loses its impact if the time of day isn't right. So I try to shoot, especially in Africa, you have a small window of opportunity because the sun rises rapidly, sets rapidly, but that hour or half an hour, that's the time to capture the moment. And the key for me is always pressing the shutter at the right time, because especially with someone's face, um, I want to capture the emotion. I want, I want there to be a connection, not just walk into a village and walk out again and think, well, I've taken a few shots. I want to spend time. I want the photograph to have meaning, depth. Don't always achieve it, but you have to, you know, you accomplish in proportion to, to what you attempt. Hmm. So when you uh, in a new place, then um, say you, you find yourself in a village, Ethiopia, somewhere, you're seeing it fresh for the first time and uh, different culture lots of visual information um you see everything you know when you're when you're in a place for the first time especially when it's different you know you go to somewhere else in the uk or europe it's, it's kind of similar but when you go to somewhere that's a very different culture you kind of notice everything and um so do you how do you approach that do you dive in or do you step back and take a, a, some time to really observe what's going on well, that's a really good question. I first went to the tribal areas when I was living in Singapore, strangely, 
I took a trip to Ethiopia in the year 2000. When I first went to the Omo Valley, it just blew my senses in every direction. And of course, you know, I, I dived in, but retrospectively, that's always a mistake. Mm. Now, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. January, I think it was January 2019, I went to South Sudan for the first time. I've been twice and I'm going again, touch, touch wood in February uh, with a small group. Um, I, I arrived at this incredible cattle camp and it was like nothing else I've ever seen. And, you know, I, I just wondered first. I, I, I was scared to pick up the camera and shoot because you, you don't know how the locals or how the, the herders are going to respond, mm. which is why I always, in every African context, take a local guide who mm. interacts with them first. And that always gives you time to think. And, it, mm. and, and when I'm with a small group, I always say, let's wander, let's look. Um, don't get your cameras out just yet. And let's absorb what is out there and see what we have the capacity to capture. And I think that's incredibly important. If you dive in, you, you, you don't think and you... You, you look at your photographs afterwards and you've you've missed the feet of the cattle or the foot of of, of the herder or you know you you have to look especially somewhere like that you have to look at the edges as well as your focal point i wanted to ask you specifically about a couple of projects the south sudan uh, dinka cattle camp you've just described it a, a little bit um, when I, I saw those pictures, I mean, they're so atmospheric. Um, can you describe who those people are, where they live, and, and what they're about? Yeah, abs- absolutely. Part of my, my geography, I've always had a, a, a real passion and interest in indigenous people, <coughs> which is why my photo- uh, photography focuses um, on them. But for years now, I've wanted to go to South Sudan um i've also wanted to go and i did that a couple of years ago to to the wadabi tribe in chad Mm -hmm. and the tribes of southern angola um all of which were fantastic but the cattle herders of south sudan the dinka and the mundari the mundari are perhaps uh, the more authentic of the two um still living very traditionally i first saw photographs taken by sebastian salgado black and white, uh, years ago. He must have went there before there was ever conflict. And uh, I I thought, well, as soon as this place opens up again and becomes safe, I'd really like to go. So I had a contact and decided a couple of years back this. uh, I, I was really nervous about it because South Sudan has a, a reputation, and I didn't want to get caught up in conflict or, or trouble of any sort. But basically, I, I, I went in, you know, I always do a little bit of reading. The Mandari tribe, a huge tribe, very tall, 
I think they might arguably, them and the Dinka will be the tallest tribe in Africa. And they, they live, it, it's like a form of symbiosis. Their connection to their cattle is quite incredible. You know, I, I, I couldn't get over walking into the camp for the first time and the dust in the air is, is really ash from the fires that they, they stoke and create every day. They gather the dung, the kids gather the dung in the morning, they dry it out, they use it as a fuel, and then they take that fuel um, and when it's, when it's down to ash form, they massage it into the cattle to mitigate against insect bites. They massage it into themselves for the same purpose. So they walk around these cattle camps looking like ghosts. They often wash themselves under the stream of cattle urine in mm. the morning, which after a while turns the, the tribesmen's hair orange. Now the women don't, don't cover themselves in ash, but they work um, with the cattle as well. And it's, I've never seen anything like it in the sense that the, these cows are, you can almost see two-way affection. And, you know, they don't, they don't kill them for, for meat. They take blood from them. And maybe if there's a very special celebration, <coughs> they, will, they will use meat. But in general, they're not, they're not uh, big meat eaters unlike unlike us in the western world now um but incredible incredible culture and just wonderful people they 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 have love having their photograph taken and you can get so many mm. candid shots because they're just getting on with their work of course the little boys occasionally mm. pose and uh so too the girls but in general, it's very easy to take photographs of them. It's the sets of images, and, and these are the ones that I think uh, won you the Travel Photographer of the Year. People and Culture. Uh, People and Culture Award, so, so congrats oh, for that. Oh, thank you. wanted to just mention that uh, in case you were too humble to mention it yourself. <laughs> um, but uh, the, the, the images, are, the cattle just look phenomenal, don't they? I mean, I've never seen a cow that looks so amazing. And um, and yeah, the, with the way the dust kind of hangs in the air, they they just everything's kind of silhouetted almost. It's really atmospheric. Um, one thing I I, I noticed um, again, my experiences with uh, Maasai villages, and I don't want to you know make it out like I'm I'm always hanging out with Maasais in their villages. I've been a couple of times, but um, when you go to these places, you can <coughs> sort of know what to expect because you've seen images, you know, but you don't. The images don't communicate the 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 heat that was just because we would go in the middle of the day to the massa village on the kind of trip that we do it's just too hot uh, it's, it's like physically difficult to be there the the smell of the smoke and and uh, from the fires uh burn, burning in the traditional homes the smell from the animals it's very very kind of visceral experience isn't it i guess it must be the same um visiting the dinka uh, absolutely. When, when you go to these camps, um, we deliberately actually camp in the camp or 50, 100 meters away from the camps, which is perfectly safe to do so. But it actually means you can go 
at dawn or you can go mm. at sunset. Uh, there's actually no point in going to the camps in the middle of the day because all the cattle go to graze on the floodplains of the Nile. And it's amazing. They, they, they go by themselves, no herders, and they come back by themselves. The only time they send herders out is if one or two don't come back. Um, mm. But the whole atmosphere is, is, is at its best first thing in the morning when the smoke's in the air and the dust's and it just creates this it, it is fading scene where you have these Ancoli Watusi cows with the longest horns in the world and uh, the herders in their cloaks or blankets, um, sometimes stark naked, um, with, with, with the cattle. And it's as if you've got a, a, a biblical painting in front of you with everything fading almost into nothingness. Mm. So there's a hint of, uh, it gives the photo, I think, amazing depth. It, it really, really blew me away. Mm. So, and these guys will have lived like this for hundreds or thousands of years. So it's really like going back in time. In a way, it, it, it is. I mean, a, a lot of these, the indigenous cultures, even in Ethiopia, I mean, they're, they're being affected by, by change, of course, and it's not good. But... Uh, they, ha they are living very sustainably. They have a small, as the geographer in me would say, ecological footprint. They don't take anything from anywhere else. Maybe the medicine for their cattle, which we help to supply when we go. You know, there are not many tourists yet or not many travelers mm. or photographers, but it's always nice to be a part of something uh, sustainable rather than... than creating a, a a human zoo scenario which i hate mm, mm. Uh, okay you mentioned it let's talk about the wadabi tribe in chad um i've never seen photos of that tribe i've never ever seen that and when i read that it was in chad i was like chad um <laughs> who go nobody goes to chad um uh, i've met someone a couple of years ago in, in aberdeen and uh, the lady was saying that she'd just come back from Chad. I think she was a missionary. And uh, I was like, Chad? I had the same re response because it's just, you meet people from Nigeria, you meet people from Angola, you meet people from lots of places, but you never meet someone from Chad or someone who's been to Chad. So I was really intrigued about that. Yeah, these are amazing images with, of a, a festival where it's um, it's hard to kind of describe the, the, the expression and the, and the look that these guys have. Do you want to talk a little bit about what's uh, going absolutely. on Absolutely. I mean, I first, I first saw photographs of the Wadabi ah, years ago. It must have been National Geographic or, or, or a similar magazine uh, in Niger. The Wadabi exist. They're part of their, a subgroup of the Fulani. They're cattle herders. Uh, nomadic pastoralists and they exist in the Sahel zone of Africa which is a, a zone between the savannah and the Sahara Desert uh, so they have to migrate to get fresh pasture but at the end of the um, wet season they, the cows are in good shape. They have an annual festival called the Gerawal, uh, where the men beautify themselves. 
And it's 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 something I've always wanted to see, and I had an opportunity. I should have been I should have gone back again this year. Um, touch wood, maybe next year. Um, but to see these men in one place, which is chosen um, by uh, you know, it's, it's sort of a very auspicious uh, occasion, and you never know exactly where it's going to be. So the guys that take you here have to find out. And it's only this once a year that the, the, all the clans of the Wadabi, they get together um, in, in a number of different places. And uh, the men spend time with their makeup, with their body paints, with their beaded robes and they, they, they make themselves they you know it, it, it's it's very effeminate what they do and they're they're beautiful people they're very finely structured and then they start dancing you know through the night the last night we were there there the, the final night they danced all night you know we were in tents mm. all night and it, it was hot um but basically the girls who are, you know, it would go against all, all sort of um, beliefs here. The girls, as soon as they reach puberty, have the right to choose a man. And so they do. And they go up uh, and, and touch the guy that, that has beautified themselves in a way that, that truly appeals to them. And they you know, touch that guy and, and that means they can, if they want, have a liaison together. And that liaison can be, if you like, a one-night uh, get-together, or it can be for longer than that, over the period of the festival, or it can lead to something much longer uh, lasting. But to see these girls with their tattooed faces, they all have the most incredible tattoos, even from babies. And, you know, mm. they, they cut themselves with razor blades and they mm. rub ash into it. So the tattoos are black. And there, there were two clans, the, the Japta and the Sudasakai. And uh, the Sudasakai have fewer tattoos, but they all have tattoos. The Japta, I've never seen anything like it. Their faces were etched. Uh, with mm. with black scars, um, and that is part of their cultural beautification, and they're truly truly nomadic. They don't stay in one village. They move all the time with their cattle. That there's not a lot of tourists and outsiders around at this at this point. No, I guess. no, uh, very few. There, I mean, it's opened a little bit. I think the first time they, this this company. Uh, arranged this there were 10 people watching um you know and it's quite a big event and whenever i went in uh, i think it was 2018 yes uh there were 30 people watching but they divided us up into three sets of 10 so it was so unintrusive and it was a festival for them we were just bystanders they were doing mm, okay. nothing uh, that you could describe as 
Uh, they're just doing it for the tourists. They're absolutely not. This mm. is like going to the cattle camps. They they do it. Their life is is their life, and it's the same mm. with the Wadabi. It's done for them. It's not it's not a it's not an, an act put on to attract money from tourists. <laughs> More tourists go. Presumably, that might change i mean uh, when i took my group to the maasai village th- there was someone was uh saying well you know some of that was a bit of a performance and i thought well y- yeah for sure but you, well, you go you go to edinburgh and there, there are guys playing bagpipes in the yeah, street yeah. you know it's like for money so there's not I, i'm not going to say there's anything wrong with that but with the influx of more tourism uh, I mean, how how do you think these cultures can preserve the traditions, which are incredible and should be preserved, while uh, continuing to exist in a changing and, and modern world and, and maybe letting go of some harmful practices like FGM and so on? Is, is that a difficult path for these people, do you think? I, th- I think it's an incredibly difficult path. I mean, at the moment, places like South Sudan and Chad are getting very, very few people very few so the impact is small but there is no question that this is going to change and in some parts of the world it it, it already has changed if you i first went to the thai hill tribes in 1989 and it blew my mind i i dread to think what it would look like today if i went back Mm. I first went to the Omo Valley, as I said, in Ethiopia in 20, uh, sorry, in 2000. And I was there earlier this year in February. And there's been a lot of change. Um, Westernization, Chinese t-shirts, instead of the girls being bare-breasted, a lot of them are covering themselves mm-hmm. up missionaries so i i have i'm I, i'm quite anti any form of proselytizing um new roads telecommunication mass government influence acculturation where they want the tribes uh, not to uh, appear primitive um the chinese and big agribusiness cotton, all t- sugarcane, these things are all really damaging. Now, I, I try with my little photo tours to make them as sensitive as possible. So as I said early, earlier, we go in, we spend time, we interact, we photograph and we feel comfortable. Yes, there are village fees and they get paid and, you know, the facial paints, for example, let me pick the Suri tribe. They've been around for centuries before tourists. But mm. the floral embellishment that the, the Suri girls put on top, that's, mm. that's new. But is it a bad thing or is it in a way encouraging them to reinvent themselves culturally and still... Mm. So tourism, in a way, can stimulate the culture. Mm-hmm. They realize, well, we've got something that's special. Let's, you know, keep it and let 
and make a little bit of money out of it. So it gives us a supplementary mm-hmm. income. But of course, you know, I, 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 I get upset really when I see the Hammer tribe, the women of the Hammer tribe, and they're, they're out at the, the bull jumping ceremony, and they used to be bare-breasted, and now they're, they can be sometimes just wearing a, a, a bra and jumping around, you know, and I think, whoa, that looks, you know, that doesn't look very mm. <laughs> tribal, but who am I to judge at the end of the day? Mm. You know, they have to make their own choices and decisions, and uh, I, I'm, I'm a great fan of Survival International and empowering tribal people to make their own choices. Um, mm. Angola, I went to, I'm hopefully going next year again, um, year before last, and that was fantastic because the tribes there haven't really been touched but they all they all have a bit of Western influence now, Western clothes. Very rarely do you see, um, well, in some places you, you still can. It's incredible. These are uh, difficult questions and, and, no, no, and no. It's, it's, it's really good to talk them through with you. Um, um, the next thing I wanted to ask you about, if you don't mind, is portraits because you have a lot of portraits. And um, it's something you obviously make a point of shooting. Um, and you, you must have heard this before um, from your guests and so on. People love the idea of photographing people and making portraits, but they don't know how to approach someone or they don't feel comfortable to, to especially when there's that cultural or language barrier. You just don't know if you're going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. What um, You seem to have it down to a fine art. So what's the key to approaching someone to ask them to make their portrait? Well, it, it's something that I think takes time time as in years of practice and time in the village itself but i i rely very heavily in ethiopia for example i have a fantastic guide and she's tribal and she's the only girl that does it in the Emma valley and she's amazing and mm. She, she, she speaks the mainstream Ethiopian language, Amharic, but she also speaks uh, one of the tribal languages because she, her origins are of, of mixed tribal and, and Amhara. So she walks into the village. They know her. They, they, they can have a laugh with her. She, she jokes with them. And we sit around and relax. And when we start to take photographs, that makes it just so much easier. Because some, mm-hmm. some people with me will be very uncomfortable about putting a camera in someone's face. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if you've got a longer lens, uh, which I quite often use. I'm a 70 200 millimeter person when it comes to mm-hmm. uh, taking portraits a lot of the time. But I, I think once people are comfortable, the photograph reflects that. And basically, that's when you get the emotion, the hint of a smile, um, or the kid with a big, big laugh. Or, you know, I, I'm not a big laugh person, really. I, I, I like more serious portraits. And then when I've, when I've got a relaxed scene in front of me, I can say to some of the people, ah, w- would you mind sitting? 
in the doorway because I like I like to use spot metering and and I like the brighter face cast against the darker background and mm. I only feel comfortable doing that and I, I I say to people with me look if you're not truly comfortable yourself come with me you know I'll set it up and uh, you know, I'll take a shot or two, then you can take the slot or, or even better, you know, you take the slot to get the head on shot and I'll shoot them at the same time from the side to, to make it appear mm. a bit more uh, candid. Mm. Um, but after a while, photographers do relax and they get into the swing of it, but you've got to show them the way and make them mm realize that they're just fellow human beings or albeit of a different culture and sometimes they can be really snappy and 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 difficult but that's when you know a sense of humor and also you know the ability to say okay no problem we won't take your photograph mm, you know sure. but but you still hang around with them and 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 you're friendly towards them, you know, and eventually mm -hmm. you might find, okay, okay, I'll, you know, you can take my photograph now. Mm -hmm. uh, it, 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 it's, it's all about time and interaction and socialization. Mm. And being respectful, I think. Totally and utterly. There's nothing worse and it upsets me greatly and I've seen it happen so many times. I'm going to be slightly, you know, and I, I, I'm at Mr. Cultural Understanding, but there are, have been in the last couple of years, groups of Chinese in particular uh, coming to Africa and going in, paying them money in cash, taking photographs and walking out again. Mm. No interaction, complete. And it, it, it makes me so angry because mm. it undermines what anybody else who is sensitive is trying to do. Okay, well said. Um, okay, let's talk about your camera gear then. You touched on it there. You reach into your uh, camera bag. What is the first thing that comes out, camera and lens? Depends what I'm doing. <laughs> if I'm taking an Irish landscape, it's probably going to be the tripod plus the, the Nikon D850 and the 14 24 millimeter f2.8 mm -hmm. lens with the Nisi filter system mm -hmm. in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. If I'm in the African village, it's going to be, I have one of these spider belts, you know, so I walk in with, with, with a holster system. Um, and I, I tend to use the, again, the D850. I have a D810 as well, although I've just traded it in and I'm waiting for the new um, Z7 Mark II. Mm. Um, but... I use, but I'll use that with an adapter because the D850 is the most incredible camera I've ever used. Mm. Um, I use most commonly in a tribal village or for portraits the 7200 f2.8 or the 85mm f1.4. Mm. And I switch from one to the other. I try not to change lenses because of the dust. I don't want my sensor um, having lots of little bits of dust that. that annoy the life out of me when I'm trying to edit later. 
sure. I was I was about to ask if you need to travel light, but then I realized you've got an 850 and a 70 to 200 and another camera and a few lenses with you. So maybe you're not traveling as light as I thought. No, no I, I really wish I could travel lighter and I'm going to have to think about doing so because it just gets heavier and heavier. The, the nice thing about going to the villages is you can usually park the vehicle outside. So mm. I go in armed with one camera and one lens. And if I really need it, I either send one of the, the guides or drivers because the drivers act as guides as well, mm -hmm. which is fantastic. Um, so I can send them back and grab my camera or I just walk back and, and do it. Mm. Um, I try not to carry a whole bag full in with me because I think it's it's it, or oh, it just looks a little bit intrusive. And so, how, when you when you're shooting, um, say you go into a village uh, or to a festival like uh, in Chad. Okay, I guess if you're doing portraits, you're probably handling the camera differently than if you're covering uh, just if you're doing sort of documentary style photography. Um, what's your sort of go-to way for using the camera? Are you like a manual guy, or you have it in a priority mode? No, I'm I'm. W almost 100% aperture priority. Mm -hmm. Only at night, night skies or something, or for long exposures do I use uh, manual. Aperture priority is so versatile. Mm. And I, I tend to, I'm, because these cameras, you know, they've got a lot of megapixels, I tend to put my ISO higher than, than a lot of people. So I'll go in with an ISO of 400, 500, 800, no problem at all. You don't notice it anymore, mm. and a tiny little bit of grain doesn't do any harm. Mm. Um, just so that I can shoot a shot and make sure it is sharp. Yeah. If it's not sharp, then um, I, I'm very unhappy because at the end of the day, I'm shooting a portrait of of this beautiful tribal lady or or an old man with a pipe. I want his eye, at least one of his eyes, in focus, and I want you know the the the, the lines on his face to be clear, etched. So so the ISO and I shoot always almost always at f 2.8 or f 1.4 yeah. unless there's a group in which case I'll put the the f stop uh, at f 5.6 or 7.2 to make sure I get both in focus unless deliberately I want one uh, out of focus yeah. I play all the time with, with also with exposure compensation because uh, skins vary a lot even in africa they, they vary a lot in t tones and and depth of color mm. but i, I notice you yeah, just when you've said that you'll have a lot of dark skin subjects with a dark background you'll have a feel for the type of compensation you need to do for that even before you shoot right yeah ab absolutely I, I i think i know what i'm going to do but i always check and if i've got it wrong then quick quick tweak of the exposure compensation or the ISO and uh, off I go. Okay, that's a great insight. I love to use uh, to shoot an aperture priority as well. And I it's I know like you're as a pro, you're supposed to be shooting in manual, but it's too much trouble. And uh, Do you know what, just just to interrupt you there, there are very few pros that I've come across as travel photographers that shoot in manual. Mm. 
very, very few. The vast majority that I've seen and I know, and I know some great photographers, truly great, uh, Marcel Van Oosten, um, Ignacio Palacios, you know, a lot of these guys, mm. they, they, it's, 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 at the end of the day, it's about your creativity. Mm. And nobody will care what mode the camera was on at the end of the day when they see the picture. So, uh, no, absolutely. Okay, this brings us to around. We've gone slightly over time, but I want to, if you've got another few minutes, I want to go through it's a fine. couple of special rounds. Uh, this round, I call it double exposure because I'm going to choose a picture of yours to ask you about, which you can tell me the story behind. And then if you like, you can pick one of your shots, which has got a great or epic or memorable story or something that really moved your photography on, something special about that that you can tell me about as well. So the picture I wanted to ask you about, if I roll down your Instagram feed, it's a picture of an old Asan hunter from Namibia. And I know you have a lot of portraits, so I don't know if you're going to specifically remember. This I, I think I know the one you're talking about, though. It's an, a, an old guy with a, a slightly pointed chin. Yeah, he looks about 300 years old. <laughs> he was only 295. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you remember anything about that shot? It's just to me, I mean, you've got a lot of strong, strong portraits, but that one just well, jumps out to me. What we did, it, it was amazing. We went to this sort of remote area. I think it's called Noma. This was uh, quite recent, actually. This was 2019. And we went to this uh, northeastern area of, of Namibia where the sand people still exist in a fairly, fairly traditional way. And... Uh, they took us out for the day and showed us how to make fire uh, naturally. It's amazing watching them watching them make fire and they they took their bows and their arrows. They they often hunt for porcupines mm. and they showed us porcupine holes and uh, they walked through the bush with us and uh, along the way, you know, we had the opportunity to to shoot them making fire. And this old guy, he was just wonderful. Always had a little mm. smile on his face. And uh, I took quite a few photographs of him because he was, he was easy to photograph. He was a very nice character. Mm. And um, his face was just etched with stories, mm. you know, a lifetime of, of hunting. The, the sand people or the, the Khoisan, uh, they're, they're also known as the Bushmen, one of the oldest tribes in Africa, said to be in that region for 30,000 years. Mm. And it's some of them that create the wonderful cave paintings uh, in Africa. Uh, basically, um, he, he, at the end of the, the, the time, I think I just said, I'd really like to take your portrait, where I said to the guide, and it was, it was no problem at all. So that's probably where that, that photograph, when that was where that photograph materialized yeah. from. Yeah, it's such a, a well, it, obviously you can feel the guy's good vibes that you've sort of described, and uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful shot. So congrats for that. Is there, out of everything you've done, is there one thing that just stands out in your mind as, Completely unforgettable. Oh, um, 
Well, there's a little character that that uh, was a few years ago. Uh, you'll probably know the photograph if you browse through my photographs. Um, I was driving through a little town in Ethiopia called Jinka, and uh, I saw this street kid, you know, running in the street, and. There were three vehicles. We were the last one, and I just said stop because um, this kid had blue eyes mm. and got out. And his name's Abusha, and he had no problem at all. Or we had no problem at all photographing him. But the. The story really is that in the last three or four years I've been going there, I've made a point of finding him mm. and shooting him so that I'm trying to sort of, if I, if, I, if I can keep it going, it will be a, a photograph with a story through time mm. of this kid with his unique, I think it's a genetic mutation because apparently his little brother, who I haven't met yet, um, has it, and his mother has one blue eye and one brown eye, mm. and that to me, you know, the, the photograph also went through to Travel Photographer of the Year, but uh, it's it's just one of those that will always stand out. You know, as it happens, lots of photographers have now photographed him, mm. and I wasn't the first, but. Uh, my guide knows him really well, and she just goes and finds him. Mm. And uh, off we go. We take him out for the day and uh, shoot him. Mm. Is he? How old is he now, roughly? Oh, he's about 12 now. So is he still a street kid? Well, his mum still exists, but he prefers to live off the streets mm. because he knows he, he, he actually <laughs> makes a lot of money out of tourists because yeah. he's so unusual looking. And he's mm. nice. He's a nice kid. Mm. You know, there's no anger or vanity or he just, he just, he's got these blue eyes and an African kid. And, and whilst the, the locals may think he's, you know, he's unusual. Um, everybody else thinks, whoa. Mm. Um, so, special kid. Mm. There's one shot that I, I have. I'll link these shots in the show notes so that people can find them. But there's certainly one that I've found where he's has got a leaf over uh, over his face partly. I think that's maybe the same kid that you're talking about. Yeah, it is. It um, is. But, okay, great, great story. Okay, final round. And let's bring it home. It's a quick fire round. You ready? Absolutely. Go this for round, it, Graham. This round is called Motor Drive because we're going to go fast. All right. Okay, wide angle or telephoto? Uh, both. <laughs> <laughs> Disqualified. <laughs> okay, head or heart? A heart. Okay, this is a tricky one. The greatest Irish band of all time? Uh, phew, well, it has to be you too, doesn't it? Okay, they're, even they're better than Westlife? Uh, I, I think they're more enduring. Okay, uh, everybody's going to agree with that. Um, okay, what was the last great book, movie, series or album you experienced? I've always been a, love, uh, a, a lover of chill-out type albums. You know, I, I love something like Enigma. Great lover mm. of, of 
80s Motown soul mm. music. Okay, lovely. Uh, movie, I mean, I'm a, I'm a Shawshank Redemption type person, mm -hmm. you know, and that's, <laughs> that's from a long time ago, but it's still one of those movies. What else did you ask? Uh, just one of those movie uh, series album. It doesn't have to be one of each, but just something great that you experienced lately. Um, okay, expensive lens cloth or the corner of your shirt? Lens cloth. Okay, this is a professional we're talking to here, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, uh, what's a weird or unusual thing I could find in your camera bag? Um, weird or unusual thing you could find in my camera bag? Mirrors. Because when I go to the tribal villages, they love to look at themselves. So I buy these little plastic mirrors, which are actually very good. They don't break. Mm. And I take them in in my camera bag and hand them out. And they, oh. they, they, they think it's wonderful. Great. Uh, okay. Favorite photographer right now? Salgado. He's my, 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 ah, just the man of my inspiration. Okay. Salgado. Link in the show notes. Um, what's uh, one thing you wish you'd known five years ago? Um, not to cheapskate. Buy the most expensive lens, buy the best filter system and not have to replace them five years, three years, two years later because mm. you've made a mistake. So you want to name and shame the cheap thing that you bought or shall we just leave it? Well, I, I started with Koken filters a long time ago. Absolute mess. Um, high tech, I didn't enjoy them. Um, now I use Nisi filters, and it's cost me a fortune over time. But but mm. the the difference is remarkable. Are they the magnetic ones? No, no. Okay. I, I I would be very tempted by those, but I I don't dare not look at them because I you know it just costs an absolute yeah an arm and a leg. I know exactly what you mean. Um, uh, is there a dream location or project that you would love to shoot? Yes, Iran. I'd love love to shoot Iran, and hopefully this year, I want to do two weeks in Calcutta, or Kol Kolkata, and Dhaka in Bangladesh mm. to shoot the shipyards and the workers, uh, more street style stuff. Just mm. a little bit of a change, but I I, I love that sort of thing. I know a couple of people from Iran here in Aberdeen and uh, just the nicest, nicest, most lovely people you can meet. Everyone I know has said it's a fantastic country and I haven't been and I'm desperate to go. I've heard that as well. And I was talking to my friend uh, again. I met this lady at a mom and toddler group that I went to with my daughter. Uh, she's from Iran. And so I was just asking her, you know, what, what it's like and stuff. And uh, she's like, oh, no, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's lovely. It's not like what we are shown and told it is about Iran. Absolutely. And, and so I don't know. There's something, there's a lesson in there for sure. There's um, a lesson for most Americans, mm. for sure. <laughs> so, uh, okay, last one. When do you feel at peace with the universe? Do you know when I'm walking on an Irish beach, when I'm fully immersed in nature and i'm breathing in fresh atlantic air looking you know at the power of the waves and just the respect i have and appreciation i have for the joy of what this earth is all about mm. I, I i'm i'm a natural environment man yeah that's a great answer and 
Thanks, Trevor. Really appreciate your input uh, on, on this conversation. I've, I've really loved every minute of it. Oh, thanks, Graham. You've been very easy to talk to. Where can people go to connect with you, support your work, and find out more about what you do? Well, I'm, I'm uh, my photo tours are alternativevisions.co.uk. We just run a few each year, small. They're not cheap because Africa isn't cheap. Coal Images is where I sort of have my portfolio. Instagram, at uh, Trev Cole. Um, Facebook, um, Alternative Visions Photography, or just Trevor Cole and Facebook. Um, I'm also on 500px, and I, I get... I try to get published photos on one X, one exposure, which is, mm-hmm. is, is, is challenging, but I, but, I, but I love that little challenge. Okay, thanks for that. I'm going to let you go and uh, all the best with the future. I hope you can get back on the road next year if this is all getting behind us a little bit. I hope so too. I'm, I'm going to be an optimist and say, take the vaccine as soon as it comes. The science behind it is good. Thanks, Trevor. We'll leave it there. Um, take care. All right, Graham. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. Follow Trevor on Instagram and you can find out all about his photography tours at alternativevisions.co.uk. Also check out the photographers Trevor mentioned, some amazing work there. All the links and links to the other things we spoke about are in the show notes. And uh, if you like this episode, also check out my conversation with Brian Hodges. That's season one, episode 10. I think you're going to love that as well. I'd love to connect with you. You can find all my links in the show notes. And if you enjoy the episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the podcast. I'd really, really appreciate it. Okay, that's it for this week. Enjoy your photography, be kind, and I'll see you out there.